Well, hello, boys and girls, sports fans and assorted waifs and strays. It's Den here from Diginomica, and today I have a very special guest. Aren't they all special? Well, this one is extra special because this is my old buddy, Vijay Vijay Asanka, uh, who I've known for how many years, Vijay? What, 10, 12, too many? Uh, I think at least 12. Right, okay. Now, Vijay, rather than me do it, you you give us a little bit about who you are, what it is that you do, and then we can get into the things that we want to talk about. Yeah, uh, I do have a little bit of an identity crisis, given yeah, I've <laughs> done a lot of very different things. Uh, but most of my life, I've been a consultant. Um, I'm an engineer by training um, with an MBA in finance. What I love to do the most is uh, to code. Uh, I'm a vice president at IBM. That's my day job. Um, and I uh, I love cricket. That's pretty much about uh, and dogs. Um, I I like to uh, uh, show dogs, train dogs, hug and uh, <laughs> play with dogs. So uh, yeah, that's the big the big part of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you say an identity crisis, uh, there, Vijay, I guess what you're really trying to say is that uh, over time you've become something of a polymath because you've done quite a lot of different things, right? <laughs> That, that, that's right. Okay. Right. Well, just to be clear with everybody, even though um, VJ has, uh, has said who he works for, we're not going to be talking specifically about his employer or the role that he plays there, um, but rather in a more general sense. And that keeps us both in relatively safe um, territory. And that's uh, that's always something that we're, we're mindful of. So anyway. Yes, Let's get um, let's get going. So um, beforehand, and again, just so that people know, beforehand I threw some topics over to to VJ to see if you know he was happy with them, and so far so good. And but then we haven't said anything yet, have we? Um, <laughs> anyway, look, we're seeing plenty of CXOs saying that they have heard about good old digital transformation, and but are unclear what it means to them. How should we be guiding them as opposed to ramming solutions down their throat? Would you say, VJ? Or should we even be talking about it, for that matter? <laughs> oh, you know, personally, I'm not a big big fan of the term. Right? I, I generally think a good start is to stop using digital transformation as a as a generic term. Right? Every industry has big ticket problems. You know, like retail companies get driven out of the town by by Amazon, or utilities. You know, many of them have a big fear that they have a generation of highly skilled, specialized skilled people. Uh, who will probably retire without an efficient transition to the next generation. Yeah. Uh, every uh, company out there wants more customers to sign up for their goods and services and existing customers to spend more, um, you know, over time. So, uh, you know, the, the reality is every, every company will evolve and has to evolve to stay relevant. And it needs a combination of, you know, let's say management techniques or, you know, analog techniques along with these digital technologies to, to overcome this, right? So um, digital transformation, you know, when we say it in a generic way, it loses all nuance and, you know, it, that's why it looks like a solution looking for a problem. Uh, the, the second difficulty I have with this term is, you know, we start using um, digital native companies, you know, the, the Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world. Uh, or Teslas of the world, and we say that, oh, why are you not, why is uh, Marriott and Hilton and uh, General Motors not doing the same? 
they cannot do the same. They are they are very different, you know. So, consequently, um, you know, we use the wrong examples and we lose the mind share of established companies quickly, and that also doesn't help with the transformation narrative all that much. So, net uh, net, I generally don't start any conversation with my clients saying, "Yeah, you need to digitally transform," because I don't want to be locked out of the room. Well, yeah, I can, I can believe that, but you know, they've heard a lot about this, and I mean, one of the things that we see is um, CXOs call, calling us into the room and saying, "Oh, tell us about," and then they'll give you the buzz phrase. It could be digital transformation. I mean, it's a reasonable place to start, I suppose. And then, you, and then you turn around and say, "Well, what is it you really want to do?" And that that. I think is a better starting point. You know, what problem are you trying to solve, or you know, what are what are the institutional shareholders told you that they've got they they want you to do, and so on. I mean, is 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 that a fair representation? Am I only seeing a thread of it, or what do you reckon? No, absolutely spot on. Right, that's the perfect ground for tech to help. You know, such leaders. You know. Mm. Uh, one of my, my clients, I right, would say, hey, if only I knew the spend patterns of my clients in, uh, I don't know, the Caribbean versus Hawaii, or I could have made a ton of money. Or, uh, you know, I have this really terrible problem with customer returns um, of my goods, and I actually want to be the industry leader in my segment. What should I be doing? Right. So those kinds of problem statements, right, specific problem statements, they provide a great framework to make decisions on what combination of technology and, you know, whatever management techniques can, can make it work. And, you know, what, what trade-offs need to be considered. Now, that said, there is a caveat too, right? Uh, we don't know what we don't know. So every business also needs to spend some time experimenting, right, to see what else can be done. Um, so some amount of blue sky exercises are unavoidable and probably a great thing. And, you know, digital techniques, you know, like, for example, better A-B testing, right, um, you know, which is like a very simple use case, um, it can, can be of tremendous value. So the more clarity we have on where we need to go, which is a business decision, there is a lot that technology can help and in, in with that decision making. The other way around, right, we go in with digital transformation as the initiative, uh, then then it looks pretty weird because, you know, then, um, you know, there is no framework to uh, to make a, a, a problem well-defined. Okay. So, so when you're talking to customers, I mean, you've mentioned a few specific use cases. Is that the majority of what you're tending to see or are people thinking a little bit broader than this? I mean, we have, for instance, seen some of the technology companies trying to encourage their customers to think a really big vision uh, but I wonder whether that's something current companies are able to do given that there are so many distractions in the market there are so many things going on where you can look and you can say oh my goodness I might actually be uberized or I might be actually Amazon or whatever the heck that might mean um, is, is there a pattern do you see or is it oh Okay. Every like for every client lives every large established company, right? They they all have that fear that somebody will come from left field and uh, disrupt their business. That that's a given, right? Every every CEO that I have met in my life, um, you know, they, none of them are complacent and think that you know they can. But even the really really big companies like the Fortune 10 companies, right? Their CEOs also worry that somebody will come from left field and and disrupt them. Right. A good example, the, the whole Amazon versus Walmart comparison is, is perfect for that, right? I mean, in retail, I mean, Walmart is like the, the huge giant has been here for a long time, you know, lots of capital, blah, blah, a lot of uh, brick and mortar stores in, in every intersection in the U.S. 
and yet, um, you know, Amazon had no trouble, um, you know, giving them a run for money. And, you know, if anything, Walmart is fighting back just fine. So, um, yeah, no, everybody has that fear for, for sure. And, you know, they all look out for, for new opportunities. Not not everybody makes use of new opportunities, but they, they all look for new Okay. Yeah, I think th- that's a very, very good example, that one um, there, VJ, because I can remember three or four years ago, we were talking about, uh, uh, talking about Walmart, and I personally was thinking, thinking, you know, have they completely lost it? Have they missed it completely? And yet in the last year or so, I would say they've made some pretty shrewd investments to get themselves back on track and could once again, well, if they're not already, they once again become the dominant um, uh, mindshare um, retailer in, in the US. If they, have, if they have not lost it already, I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, no, I I don't think they have lost it at all, right? I mean, um, it's you know these are companies that you know I don't have a, a lot of retail expertise um, as a consultant, but mm. I mean I'm a retail consumer, so I do keep track, and you know I buy a lot from both Walmart and Amazon, right? So yeah. I, in my mind, I constantly compare the two. Sure. I mean, I'm a good example, right? In, in between, yeah, these big retailers. I mean, when we keep saying that retailers are going to go belly up because Amazon is going to come kill them all, I also think that many of the retailers uh, give up without a fight. Yeah. So if I I think about it as um, as a consumer myself, right? I don't get a few things from Amazon, right? Like the experience of a, a great salesperson guiding me or, you know, the thrill of discovering new things as I walk along an aisle, right? Which is classic in Costco, right? Which is one of my <laughs> newfound pleasures. I was not a Costco um, customer for a long time. And last year we became a Costco customer and I started walking the aisles and, you know, every time I go, I, <clears throat> I find something new and which is uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, which I will never get from, right? Right. Um, they will be of something immediately without having, uh, you know, to wait for it to uh, to be delivered. So there are lots of things, you know, experience-wise that I love in brick and mortar stores that I don't get from Amazon. Mm-hmm. Unfortunate part is how retailers are are focusing on that, right? Vast majority of the time, you walk into a retail store and it has bad displays, not friendly customer service. It's not like it's not friendly. It's also very inefficient. I don't think a lot of retailers invest in training their staff very well or they make use of technology to do that and so on, right? So I I do think while the fear of Amazon taking over retail is very real and probably not hyped up, retailers are not doing, or at least the ones that I know, are not doing enough to... um, to counter it and they just seem to be giving up without a fight yeah it's interesting you say that obviously that's your u.s experience over here in the uk we don't really have the equivalent of a walmart as such we we have tesco we have sainsbury we have asda we have morrison's and then we have a bunch of up-and-comers you know obviously amazon's part of the mix ocado's another one um but they seem to have they don't seem to have understood the digital world terribly well uh, to the point where Apart from grocery shopping, I don't think that nowadays either Judith or I ever really consider going to find a store to do anything. Um, we're going to be a, we're going to go on Amazon first and foremost. Um, 
and the, the results speak for themselves. I mean, each of those companies in, in many ways have, have problems. I mean, iconic brands over here like Marks & Spencer, which you, you may have heard of. Terrible, terrible trouble. Um, British Home Stores, another great iconic uh, example disappeared Debenhams disappearing uh, John Lewis one of the one of the great cooperative retailers in this country in trouble they just don't seem to have understood how to tie the digital and the real worlds together and um, it may be too late for some of them unfortunately but that's the way of the world nowadays isn't it yeah I mean I'm, and I, I used to live in UK many years ago like 20 years ago for a couple of years so these brands are very very familiar to me I've shopped in many of them Mm. Um, but you know that competition comes at different um, times for um, different countries. Like in my hometown, Trivandrum, in in the south of India, that I wear, I go once or twice a year. Um, what I see is, you know, it's going through what you know United States probably went through 50 years um, ago. So the smaller shops are the ones that I used to go shop when I was a kid growing up there. Uh, none of them are there, or most of them are not there. Right? They they get replaced by big supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, people use um, online shopping an awful lot too. I mean, perhaps not anywhere close to what we use here in 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 US. But I think it will take much less time for the physical supermarkets to get uh, a larger hit uh, because technology will will outpace them much more quickly because. The, you know, the people are more more tech savvy, and you know, more broadband internet access is available, and and so on and so forth, right? So, this disruption is bound to happen, right? These retailers in UK and India and so on, right? I mean, they are probably the have the best chance of surviving because that brand uh, affinity is very high mm-hmm. uh, in their local community, but they seem to be giving up without a fight, which makes me sad. I mean, there's also a nostalgia part, right? When you, when you grow up doing some things and then um, you see these very iconic brands kind of give up. Um, and I'm sure they are fighting and it's not like we, we get to see it from the outside. But uh, what we see from the outside is, you know, not not much of a fight. Okay. Whereas Amazon, on the other hand, is getting better every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh, in fact, I'd go so far as to say that Judith is an Amazon al- a- a- Amazon holic, the equivalent of an alcoholic, but buys from Amazon. If you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, look, just just thinking about this. I mean, th- th- there's so much coming to the retail world, and uh, specifically around automation and so on. We've heard a great deal about the future of work. Now, y- you you are in a service organisation. You work with service organisations, and and again with Without getting into the the specifics of your employer, I mean, what are you seeing on the ground? What are what are companies saying to you about the impacts of, of of automation and the future of work in, say, the next I don't know, three to five years? So, in the three to five year time frame, I don't think an awful lot of them are, are particularly worried about the future of work, right? Um, but you know, the reason I worry about the future is mostly because I don't think we have addressed the present very well either. Right. So future cannot be all that much um, bright if we, do, if we can't even take care of the problems that are you know, slapping us on our face uh, today. Like in, in my, my own industry, right? I mean, I, I talk to a lot of friends who work for um, you know, similar companies like my employer. So we all have the same problems, right? We all need you know, a lot of programmers, a lot of data scientists, a lot of um, you know, complex pro- project managers and so on. 
there's just just not enough talent available, right? So, um, where do you go find them? If you can't find, you know, hundreds of them today, where are we going to find thousands of them tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So that that's one, right? It's just in my industry. So you look around as a consumer. I, I was trying to help my parents a few months ago when I was on vacation in in India. Can't find carpenters or electricians or plumbers. Highly, highly paid jobs, right? I mean, these people, you know, the consumers are willing to pay a lot of money, mm. uh, and we can't find uh, people with trade skills, right? Mm. So there is not enough apprenticeships going on. I, I no longer think that schools and colleges by themselves can solve this problem, right? Or by doing more of what they do today, they're not going to solve this problem, right? right. So uh, we need to we need to rethink that aspect uh, fundamentally. Right? And now on the job loss scenario, right? There's two ways to think about it. If it's if jobs is a zero sum game, then sure automation is going to be a huge disaster for humanity. But that's not really true. At least history proves that job loss is not. Um, you know, it doesn't work that way. Like the classic example, um, ATM machines, right? I have um, um, seen photos um, of protests, um, you know, black and white photos of protests where bank employees protested that, you know, ATMs are going to uh, destroy their jobs. Um, And the trend eventually was that actually more uh, jobs got created because, you know, more banks opened up and, you know, ATM just acted as one way to to expand banks to a a lot of places. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it it didn't work out the way it was feared. Many, many similar examples. But over a long period of time, some jobs will get lost. I mean, you can't you can't help it, you know, like the, uh, when I was a little kid and if I had to call my relatives uh, outside the States, you know, you had to call the telephone exchange and they had to switch you over. Sometimes they won't even switch you over immediately. They will call you back when they have the capability to switch you to, to a call, right? What we used to call as trunk calls in, sure. in India. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those who, uh, you know, had to move on to better jobs because, of, you know, switching became all, all automated. Mm. So, yeah, over a long period of time, current jobs will go away. And I see it all, all the time. And this is very high on the priorities for a lot of CEOs that I, I get to talk to in, in my day job. Um, on, you know, what happens, um, you know, they, they also have other important questions, like when robots become a, a real thing, you know, which already it is a real thing in manufacturing. But as that uh, proceeds further, you know, will robots have rights? How will tax, uh, you know, need to evolve to, to keep up with uh, robots and humans doing the same job? Um, how will ethics evolve, right? Uh, can you can you go kick a robot and can that robot kick you back? You know, I'm, I'm just making a, a joke of it. But, you know, th- these kinds of questions will all become real, right, going, going forward, right? So a lot of focus on automation and humans coexisting, uh, probably not as much as we uh, fear in terms of automation replacing humans but that coexistence itself is not a, a well resolved issue right while we all want technology and humans to coexist a uh, lots of things that need to be figured up how, how does budgeting work in in that case right i mean and, and and so on so lots of problems that we need to solve right now uh, because these things already happen so we don't need to worry about you know, what happens when uh, automation displaces jobs. It's a a far into the future problem, if at all. I don't even think it is going to be as disastrous as we make it out to be. But there are real problems to solve now, which which worries me a lot, right? That if we don't solve this now, you know, future cannot be any better. Just to your question of um, programmers and coders and so forth, right? Um, 
I worry about the proliferation of these um, courses that basically say, hey, learn to be a coder in a, in a year. Um, that, that's perhaps a little bit over, over-egging it a little bit, but that's the general tenor of things that I, that I see. Now, I know a little bit about programming in the sense that I can do it, but I'm dangerous when I do, therefore I'm not allowed most of the time, thank goodness. Um, but what I know is is that you have to have a very specific mindset in order to be a decent programmer because there's, there's obviously a difference, yeah? Do you, do you get worried that the demand is driving the supply side to try and cut corners too much so that what we'll end up with is poor quality more than anything else? What, what would you say there? Yeah, without a question then, right? I mean, it's a short-term versus long-term problem, right? Mm-hmm. If you learn programming in, in three months or whatever, boot camp or whatever, and if you are the only programmer trying to do something, you know, clearly what would happen is you uh, write code that probably will solve the immediate problem, but you just incur a, a ton of technical debt that somebody else will then spend a lot of time and money solving it in, in, in future, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, nobody can, can master a trade in, in three months, right? You get that... Programming is less about typing code, right? I mean, there is a, a lot of thought that needs to go in, right? It's, it's problem solving that is a larger skill and not all problems need, um, you know, program as a, as a solution. I'll give you a, a quick classic example from many years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. We had a, a short window of time to go live at a, at a client and we had to uh, migrate a lot of data into the new system and our programmers came up with a, a good automated solution to do that that cost about a half million dollars. Uh, and the client didn't have a half million dollars to, to, to spend on it. They were already quite stretched and this project had to go live. And our solution actually was to get, um, you know, we eventually spent less than 25K solving it. We just hired a bunch of uh, temp workers, gave them, you know, loaner laptops, and they sat there typing up um, information straight into the computer. Mm. Which was good problem solving. It didn't need any uh, any automation, right? So, mm. um, an extreme example, and it's an old example, but you know proves the point that the the fundamental difficulty is we don't have enough problem solvers. Right. Right. So we do, we we do need programming skills. I'm not diminishing that at all, and I think these coding camps all do a good 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 thing for us. But that in itself is not going to solve the problem right? okay. because the lack of program alone is not going to make the world a, um, you know, a worse place. It's the programming, the, the problem-solving skills is what, what we lack in, in, a, in a big way. Okay. So one of the things that I want to do when and if I eventually retire um, is, is go and teach the business of critical thinking. Um, because that was, you know, when I, w- I went to university late in life, I didn't, I didn't go straight from school, I went late in life. And the one thing that I learned there was that they weren't really teaching me about the particular topic areas that I was uh, interested in. They were teaching me how to think. They were teaching me how to think critically, how to ask questions, how to um, weigh propositions and come up with with answers accordingly now the answers didn't necessarily have to be right okay that, and that's i think that's quite important to, to 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 get across but um but they at least got me to saying what why where and when yeah and, I, and i'm not convinced that we're, that we're doing enough of that at any level um are, are you seeing that in your own place i mean is, is your own internal training geared much more towards that business of problem solving for instance 
don't want to oh, talk we, about we, your we, employer we, particularly, but uh, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not a commercially sensitive problem, right, for, for me to talk about. Sure. So uh, I spend a lot, of the, a lot of my time as a teacher, right, in, within, within, um, within IBM. Yeah. So I sponsored both business and technical schools um, within our business. Um, I teach them, I sponsor them, right? I help design those courses. Um, it is it is super important that that we do this. So the the big difference, right? When you first uh, learn something, the the pattern is quite simple, right? Somebody makes assumptions, and you learn how to solve within those assumptions. In mm-hmm. real life, that is quite different. Nobody else makes any assumptions. You have to make those assumptions, and nobody has taught you how to make those assumptions. So that is a big gap, right, in, in thinking that happens between a structured learning and uh, and real life. Mm-hmm. So the, the more we can get people into this apprenticeship form of learning, then they will understand that, you know, world is not as simple as somebody tells you, okay, here are five assumptions, now go solve this problem. Mm-hmm. The, the critical necessity is who makes those assumptions, right? No, nobody gives you a... a, a Printed sheet of paper with five assumptions, right? So that, in in my mind, right, that is a gap that needs to be filled uh, because we we can with structured methods teach the, the solution part. We cannot with structured methods teach um, you know how to make good assumptions, how to how to pivot quickly when things go wrong, right? Because things go wrong, I mean, you and I both know that, right? I mean, even with our um, you know experience of critical thinking over a long time, right? We we still come to an assumption that could be totally wrong, and then we find out it's wrong. How do you how do you pivot at that point? That's also a skill that you only learn by watching and doing and picking up yourself from the ground, dusting and getting back on the saddle. That mm. those kinds of things only work in an apprenticeship kind of model, which is sorely lacking right in in our in our system. So it is something that we you know we have recognized inside, you know, inside our own business here. And, you know, we have, we have hopefully fixed it by now, right? We, we have changed how we work, uh, but it, it needs, it, but you know, it's still a, a small microcosm of what, what happens in the larger world. We, we need to shift our thinking to, to that, right? Not everything can be taught in three months and not everything can be taught in a structured way, right? That's, that need, that's the lesson that I take away from it. Now, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm particularly different to anybody else. A lot of the time, I don't think I am. Um, but one of the things that I've come to discover is that learning is, can be really joyful. Yeah, I mean, most people, too, when you think about learning, they think about schools and you know sitting in rows and doing those math tables by rote, learning their conjugation by rote, and and, and it's a nightmare. Yeah, and yet. Yeah. Personally, I, I find that the business of learning has a, has a as an element of joy about it because I'm discovering something that I didn't know before. Right now, what I'm hoping is is that while I may have that mindset, and I know that people like yourself and many of the others that I speak with have a similar mindset, I'm hoping that that's what's really going to drive people going forward generally. Because without that, the the, the problems of skill shortage, the problems of problem solving, absolutely will not go away. Um, what What's your sense there? Do, are we trapped in our own microcosm to that extent? Do you reckon, Vijay, or do you think, do you, do you sense that people generally would like to learn, but in a broader sense? 
What, what, do you, what do you think there, or is it too big a question? I don't know. I haven't got an answer. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's a very relevant question, something that I, I think about a lot too, Dan, right? So I'm uh, thankful that you asked, and it was not part of the <laughs> questions that you no, no, no. threw me earlier. In- yeah, yeah, sadly, these conversations <laughs> so, uh, go where they go, mate. You know that. <laughs> no, no, I, I know that. <laughs> so uh, here's what I think, right? So you, you're absolutely right. There is joy in learning, and good teachers, right, in, in schools and colleges, right? Them, the best teachers I remember from my life were, were folks who, you know, gave me that joy, right, in, in learning, in, in discovering new things. There is a second element of joy which we generally miss later in life, which is when we apply those, um, then we get a true appreciation. And things that we learn that we don't get to apply, we we generally don't value. And, you know, mm. that, that joy dies. Right? Mm. So, a, you have to to learn continuously um, because there is that that joy in learning. You know that you know your your brain feels better about it, and you know you 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 like it. But the the more important part, perhaps, is you know getting to apply it somewhere, and it doesn't need to be at work, right? It could be uh, at home, at your you know helping with your kids' homework, wherever it is. But when you apply it, it is actually, in, in at least for me, it's a bigger joy applying the learning than in the learning itself, right? Um, and it, we, we need to, to get into that rhythm, right? That we don't stop learning. Um, and it, well, the, the good thing is the market is kind of forcing it on us. Yeah, anyway, right? yeah. To give a, a very practical example, in 1997 or something, right? When I got into ABAP programming, right? The SAP's programming language. I took one training and then I didn't need to take any training for another five years or so, right? Because the world was pretty constant and I pretty much knew everything there is to be known about that technology in that five years. If I look at it now, right, like say something like Hadoop came out, I don't know, uh, 2006 or something. Um, and now it is at a stage where, you know, there are so many projects and, you know, some something new gets committed very so frequently that if you don't stay on top of it, let's forget five years. In five months, you will be outdated. Right. right? So yeah. the market will kind of force it on us any day. It's, it's interesting you say this because this time last week I was in my brother's workshop over in uh, in North Wales. He's a, he's a master luthier. He makes ukuleles. Um, this, I'm not bragging. They are some of the best in the world. And um, and um, he talked about this extensively because he says uh, he has Parkinson's. So his, his days of being able to make are, are coming to a close. But what he says is this. He says, you know what? He said over the years, over 20 odd years or whatever it is, he said, I've accumulated so many skills and and they're dying off he said i don't want to see that he said so you know what i'm now concentrating on is passing those skills on he said and i kind of look at it as almost like open source i said open source what do you know about open source he said you'd be surprised <laughs> and so, so and, and i said it was really interesting he was saying you know, you know i have absolutely no problem in passing on the things that have been taught to me he said because they won't apply to everybody he said you know people will take them and use them or not as the case may be he said but at least i'll have the pleasure and knowledge of knowing that those skills are being passed on and kept alive and and i really do understand that because you know our father was a a a skilled toolmaker, one of those guys who used to do everything rack of eye micrometers and all that kind of jazz before robots came along and when the robots came along basically all the skills that he had learned literally just disappeared out the window now you can say well that didn't matter because they were replaced by cnc machines and you know my brother pete uses a cnc machine which he lovingly calls boris 
and um, uh, but then there were still skills there that cannot just be passed on because the machines don't make themselves yeah and uh, so I think I think when you talk about the business of application I think for people at least of my generation uh, uh, anyway we do have an opportunity to be able to uh, say something to the younger younger generation and what they do with it of course is entirely up to them but uh, um, I would personally like to see the schools and the uh, academic um, organizations being somewhat more proactive in in terms of passing on some of these things rather than trying to put people into buckets because we're going to need multiple skills as, as life goes on I think uh, at least that's my point of view no, I, I absolutely agree, right? There's a parallel I can draw in, in the concept of leadership as well, right? Sure. One thing, one, one thing about, about leadership, right? It is not about, um, you know, how well you succeed. Your, your success purely is a factor of how many other leaders you can develop. Yeah. And when we shift our thinking to, you know, developing the folks around us and they get the same skills and experience and hopefully get better than you, right? Then the collective um, improvement is like exponential. Sure. So, uh, you know, what, what your, uh, what your brother is doing, like is, is admirable, right? If a lot of people in the world thought like him, right, we'd be in such a, a better place. Well, yeah, we'll, we will see, which actually brings us on to the question of leadership. Cause I know it's something that's, um, I mean, it's been kind of thrust upon you in a fairly sort of dramatic way in the last year or so with, with the job that you're doing. And I know from your LinkedIn posts that it's something that, um, I don't know whether it gives you sleepless nights, VJ, but some of the LinkedIn posts that I've seen from you is like, oh my God, am I doing it right or whatever, you, you know? But at the same time, hey, look at the, I can celebrate success among the team. So what, what's it been like for you for this, this last year? Because I know that you've been working real hard in this area. Yeah, so the, the, to, to begin with, right, the, the more, more I think I'm an expert in something, the, the less I... I actually know, right? I come to that realization very quickly. Amen. So Amen. There is, yeah, there, there is no, uh, there is no stopping learning. So that that's a, a given, and I kind of learned that um, late in life, and hopefully people smarter than me get to that realization sooner in life, right? You you just can't stop. I mean, this is a, a process, right? Not a uh, not an event or a, or a destination or, or anything. But you know, I I do firmly believe that racing the game only happens if everybody races their game around you. So um, my my time is mostly spent coaching, demonstrating the value system that I want that team to have, encouraging debate, right? Shielding them from distractions till I'm fairly sure that they won't be affected by it. So um, most of my time, right? Uh, probably uh, more than half of my time is spent doing that. The other half I spend with customers, right? Because if you um, sit in a, in a room or you only talk to your team, uh, you, it's very, very quick to get into an echo chamber. And echo chambers are comfortable places for us, right? Yeah. So one can, it's tough to know you are in an echo chamber uh, because it's comfortable and you have no reason to get out. So by dividing my time, you know, looking um, to the outside, right, learning from my clients, what problems are they solving and, and so on, and whether what I'm thinking of has any relevance, uh, you know, that keeps me... Um, keeps me in, in balance and which is also why I, I love LinkedIn, right? Now that I have, I'm connected to a lot of people on LinkedIn. Um, if I have a question, LinkedIn gives me quick validation, right? Hey, yeah, you're thinking about it in the right way or no, you're not. Uh, and these are some other experiences. And, you know, that's one use of social that I don't get from um, anywhere else, right? LinkedIn has been 
fabulous for that, right? You can put your thoughts in like a thousand words or so at the most, um, and you get like 50 people with relevant experience to chime in quickly, and then you can quickly get a validation, right? Whether right. you are in the right direction or whether you need to, to shift, which, which is awesome. So what would you say then, VJ? maybe the top, I don't know, one, two, three lessons that you've learned in the last year that, that you can share? So well, clearly, you know, first lesson is you know, if, you, if you don't focus on your team, um, then not, nothing good happens, right? Because they in turn take care of the clients. So that, or in a more abstract way, if you don't make people successful who are closest to the problem that needs to be solved, there is no chance of success, right? Success doesn't happen um, in, in a corporate office or at the VP level of a company or anything of that nature. Success mm-hmm. happens when yeah, the first level employee who deals with the client or whatever level of employee that leads, you know, deals with the client. I also deal with the client. So there is a definition of success at that level. So that needs to be understood, right? That success is not, success is an aggregation function, right? That a lot of people need to be successful at the front lines of the company. Um, it is not the CFO or CEO or the VP that makes a company successful, right? It, 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 um, it's the frontline employees that make a, a, a company successful. The moment we learn that, then everything else kind of uh, makes it easy, right? Then you don't worry about one-upmanship or, you know, that I need to control. And control is anyway an illusion. You don't control anybody, right? People are individuals and you can't control them. <laughs> that was another learning uh, along the way that I, I, I figured, right? Because when you first make manager, and I made manager relatively early in life, uh, it was tough um, understanding that, you know, because I kind of figured from the outside that it is all about control and, you know, you showing them away and they're doing exactly that. Uh, later in life, I, I quickly figured that no control is totally an illusion. You don't really control anybody, but you can help coach, motivate, demonstrate and so on. And then you can learn from them, right? Because they are closer to the problem. Sure. So that is by far my, my, my big learning. Okay. Yeah. Okay, VJ. let's get to yours and my favorite topic. And that's the good old game of cricket. Um, so cricket, I, I mean, I, I love all, all kinds of cricket, but especially so test cricket, which I think is the closest the world of sports has to how real life business works. So it, it teaches the virtue of patience, right? That you know, good things take time to happen. Um, teaches the value of partnerships, right? Because batsmen typically work in partnerships to, to build up their, their runs. They share the load, they de-risk, they rotate strikes. Um, then a few uh, will drop anchor and save the wickets, while you know the other few will go for big boundaries, right? So which which is exactly how uh, a big business goes after uh, you know bold moves, while the other part of the business shields um, and and protects by uh, by doing a routine business. Uh, and finally, right uh, on on the element of competition, bowlers need to take twenty wickets to win, right? Which shows that you can have no mercy when it when it comes to winning over competition, right? It's, yeah. it's very finite what you to accomplish, right? And uh, the whole thing takes five days, and each team gets two chances, or at least theoretically two chances, right, to win, which shows you know how we need to plan and execute for the long term, unlike the shorter form of cricket where you go bang bang and and try to finish it, which is not how real life business works. 
I, I think everything about test cricket is, is very similar to how uh, good business is fun. So even the, even though both you and I have enormous difficulty explaining test cricket to our American friends, they don't they don't get how you can sit around for five days watching a game, be totally fascinated and enthralled by it, and maybe not even come out with the result at the end of the day as well, right? <laughs> but they they just cannot understand. I wonder what it is about about the American psyche in that sense. Uh, but uh, I. I- I cannot even explain it to my daughter. Well, I mean, she is American. She was born and raised here. Um, and she can't even sit through a 50-over game. I right? think it is, it is too long. Right? Really? It's, it's, it's tough. I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't worry about it all that much because I enjoy it tremendously. I have no difficulties losing sleep over it. I, anytime India plays cricket, I watch it all the time. I have it on my phone. I have a backup plan in case my primary provider cannot show me the game. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all in. Oh man, maybe, 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 VJ. What what you should be thinking about is, you know, let's solve the long term leadership problems by making sure that some of these American execs sit through a five day cricket match. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that said, I haven't played. I hadn't played cricket in uh, probably fifteen years or so because I'm in no shape to do that. But yeah. late last year. Uh, around Christmas, uh, my team had a, a cricket match, and I I opened batting and uh, didn't totally suck. I mean, I, I was not that great, but at least I opened batting and I survived for a few overs. So um, <laughs> there is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a there is definitely a fun element. Okay, VJ, listen, we need to close this out. What what would you? This has been a great call. I've I've been fascinated by some of the things that you're saying, in part in large part because I I think that what you're saying, even from the the very large enterprise world that you come from um, you're validating a lot of the things that at least from my little end of the world I, I, I either see or I theorize is probably going to be true so I think that um, um, there is sense and there is common sense maybe which to a degree we all need to, to, uh, to take care of but I mean you know what what would you say for, uh, for closing words man what do you think yeah, I mean, I've, again, you know, given my uh, enterprise background, right? I mean, it's like one issue that that I I want to uh, bring up, which I think if we solve it, life will be infinitely better uh, all around in, in in our industry. So this process, this process issue has always been burning, and it just seems like over time people have been pouring more petrol or gasoline for my U.S. friends, right, on, on, on top. So every transformation initiative in a company has a, a predictable part, right, which is the benefit is tagged as a business benefit and the cost is tagged as an IT expense. And when you decouple it like that and hold IT to lower their spend year over year, nothing good happens because decisions are being made without context. See, by, by all means, any repeatable task should cost less over time, including in, in IT. But cost without associating it with corresponding value makes it a thoroughly useless metric, right? So a lot of grief about project failures and, you know, procurement negotiating only on rate cards and, you know, uh, folks in both business and IT not making good decisions because they don't understand the full picture. All of this can be avoided, right, if transformation is viewed as an enterprise problem, right, for which there are several stakeholders. And it, it's a tough problem to solve, right, because a lot of long-established accounting and budgeting processes and all need to be overhauled. Um, but the value, um, you know, it, it's, in, it, it's a complex metric. And 
it is tougher to um, uh, to think about value than cost. But if we solve that problem, right, a, a lot of grief will will go away quickly, right. So I, I would like to close on that, right. Where encourage folks to think about transformation as a uh, as an enterprise initiative, not as a business initiative or an IT initiative, and stop compartmentalizing these things. Because when you think about it as a whole, um, I think we will get a lot more accomplished. Okay, so this is this is the point at which I get some free consulting out of you, right? So <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you, VJ? Anyway. <laughs> no, but so, so what we're we're in the process of um, moving from one platform to another, okay? And there are a whole variety of reasons for doing that, but principally, what I want to be able to do is flip the switch between maintenance and development, because uh, what we found over time is that the, the platform that we're sitting on demands more and more and more by way of maintenance, and that leaves less and less and less available for innovation. Okay, so we're switching yep. we're switching platforms, um, doing it in a very purposeful way because we 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 are of the belief that the way in which the new platform will operate allows us to flip the switch, not entirely, but going from eighty to 20 to 30, 70, which is certainly good enough for me, okay? Now, at the same time, though, I have a future project which I know is going to be difficult and I know it's going to be time-consuming and I know that it's going to be resource-heavy and... and, and that's just the way it is and even then i'm not 100 percent certain whether we will come out with the with the outcome that we would absolutely desire but hopefully we'll get somewhere near now the way that i've talked about it internally is this i don't care how much it costs us i really don't care provided that i can see that there is at least a 2x return on whatever that expenditure might be now that obviously puts a limit on on what we can do i mean we we don't have the benefit of spending millions of dollars on on solving a problem we're we're fractional to any of that but the fact the fact of the matter remains is that what i'm hoping is that the way in which we will be able to do things in the future will be so much more efficient and so much more effective that whatever we decide however we end up um, the value will return to itself now that is a leap of faith to a degree I appreciate that and because none of us have a perfect um, perfect forward vision or you know none of us have great crystal balls we we can do an approximation but that's kind of about it that's the way that I'm thinking about it now would you would you would you say that's an appropriate way to do things, or are there things that I should be thinking about elsewhere? No, absolutely. Right. I mean, this this is something that I've I've, I've seen um, um, several times in, in in my life too. Right. That once you think in that way, right, as in in an, in an ROI terms, the only nuance I would put is you know since we we don't know what we don't know and you know unforeseen circumstances happen it is probably good right to to de-risk with some kind of a stop loss plan right as in at, at some point if you can't provide you know a b and c as true then uh, then perhaps we shouldn't take it forward but sure. as long as we have that fallback plan um, in mind this, what you are doing is exactly the right way to to approach it right yeah i should i should have I should have said that um, the approach that we're taking um, draws some lessons from agile methodology in the sense that, you know, we know the problem, let's break it down into the known parts, 
there will be some unknowns we we appreciate that and let's go one step at a time taking the taking things in a prioritized fashion if this component works great let's move on to the next one if this component works great let's move on to if this component doesn't work why isn't it working let's figure that one out and then see if we can come to a solution if we can fine we move on if we can't uh oh we've got to reevaluate and see what we can do from what we've done in the past that's that's basically how i'm looking at it exactly right right because when see i this is why i get a lot of grief when people say oh you are overestimate estimate by definition by definition is a, is a best guess right yeah so you know as things unfold you know unknown things will come and hit you and you know there's, there's a good chance and that's why you know, <laughs> common sense is such a beautiful thing isn't it Dan? oh yeah Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Listen, VJ, thank you very much indeed for that, those uh, few minutes of uh, of consulting time. I really do appreciate it, and I'm sure there'll be stories there for uh, for others to tell. So, uh, with that, I think thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, with with that, I think we'll close out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sports fans and assorted waves and strays, you've been listening to VJ VJ Asanka, one of the smartest people I know, who just happens to work for a large company, but we'll forgive him for that.